Last month, the Australian Federal Police and international authorities arrested hundreds of criminals across 18 different countries in the largest crime sting in recent history. It's being hailed as one of the biggest crackdowns on organised crime in history. More than 800 suspected criminals have been arrested and there have been raids in several countries across the past two days. Investigators say they gathered evidence by tricking suspects into using a messaging app controlled by the FBI. Operation Ironside saw authorities hack into an app used by criminals to read millions of encrypted messages and trace their movements. Well, they used what they thought were phones that couldn't be intercepted, but the network they were using was in fact being run by the FBI. Police could the read their communications as they, they plotted drug deals, arms deals and, and murders. The most sophisticated effort in dismantling the activities of criminals around the globe. There were over 100 threats to life that were mitigated. We were able to see hundreds of kilos of cocaine that were concealed in canned goods. Let this serve as a warning to those criminals who believe they're operating under an encrypted cloak of secrecy. Your criminal communications are not secure. Prime Minister Scott Morrison said the operation has struck a heavy blow against organised crime, not just in this and a reminder of the importance of Australia's surveillance powers and the need for their expansion. We need to continue to provide our law enforcement authorities with the powers and the authorities that they need to do this job. But new surveillance powers currently before Parliament have members of the cybersecurity community concerned. They say legislation is rushed and encroaches on individual privacy. What will be the consequence of new laws if passed with little oversight? You're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Sadly, I suspect the public will be on the Prime Minister's side. Police have done a good job. They've, you know, spent our taxes well taking out criminal operations at scale. Patrick Fair is a commercial lawyer with expertise in intellectual property, competition law, telecommunications and privacy law. And the fact that they compromise the communications devices you know, may have a greater impact than any law they, they could pass. That you know, if you're if you're trying to run a criminal enterprise at the moment, how are you going to communicate? <laughs> Which is you know, a great way of sort of undermining um, those kind of activities. The surveillance legislation amendment, Identify and Disrupt Bill 2020, will introduce new law enforcement powers and warrants. The aim is to enhance the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission's ability to combat cyber-enabled serious and organised crime. The bill introduces three warrants. A data disruption warrant, a network activity warrant, and an account takeover warrant, allowing agencies to take over a person's online account for the purpose of gathering evidence of criminal activity. So these are three very significant powers. I'm not aware of anything uh, quite so aggressive in the law of other countries. Basically, it allows any police uh, to go to a magistrate and take over somebody's account for the purposes of 
uh, um, preventing crime or catching a criminal. Members of the cybersecurity community fear police will have access to information on third parties who have no involvement in the crime. For example, seizing a Gmail account and having access to family and health information that would otherwise be restricted tightly in any other context. The, the logic of the provision seems to be uh, that they're going after somebody's laptop or um, some small system. But, you know, nowadays, most people have accounts which are held by large cloud operators. And, um, and it's just not a trivial thing to um, have the police knock on your door and say, oh, <laughs> we want to interfere with the way that particular account's working and we'd like you to do it for us now. Um, you know, the, uh, the legislation is written as if it's uh, about Inspector Plod knocking on somebody's door, uh, you know, 100 years ago. And uh, it, what, ne what it needs to do is take a little bit more care about how it's going to get a cooperation and access and, um, and then strictly limiting the harm that's done by trying to enforce this law. The warrants will operate under a reasonable suspicion model. The wording for a disruption warrant is um, uh, the officer suspects on reasonable grounds that one or more relevant offences of a particular kind have been, are being, or are about to be, or are likely to be committed. Um, and they will involve the data held on the computer, so there has to be a link to the computer. And also the disruption of the data held on the computer is likely to have substantially assist in frustrating the commission of one of those offences. Police may only apply for a warrant if they're investigating a criminal offence that carries a prison sentence of three years. But members of the community say that's far below the sentencing of serious crimes like terrorism, child abuse and human trafficking, which is what the bill is intended for. Eric Pinkerton is a cybersecurity consultant for Trustwave and has experience in the telecommunications industry. He says the threshold reminds him of historical metadata requests, which carry the same three-year minimum. By far and above the most requests that were being put through, if I recall, were around drug offences. And a drug offence doesn't have to be that serious to fall into that category of, of potentially three years in prison. Police metadata requests published online reveal that various loopholes exist within that system because what you have is these rather big uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, thresholds for if you were convicted of a drug offence, you can get a fine of $10,000 or five years in prison, right? Which is the difference between being caught with a small amount of marijuana to being caught with a, a whole ship for of bricks of cocaine. Uh, but now you've fallen into the category that they can do. So are the police running around busting relatively small-time criminals and, and, and using this? I, I don't know. And the numbers didn't seem to show that that was the case, but that is the kind of thing you have to consider when you start um, looking at legislation like this is, is how will it be used and how will it be interpreted and what if it is, is misused and will it, be, will it be picked up on. Submissions to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on the Identify and Disrupt Bill are now closed to the public. Patrick says he's curious to discover what the committee makes of these powers, but he worries the whole process may have been rushed. The other thing to say about the Identify and Disrupt Bill is it just came from nowhere. <laughs> um, often with this kind of legislation, there's a, um, a discussion paper that comes out from um, 
uh, perhaps in this case, attorney generals, um, or maybe home affairs, saying, you know, we're thinking about this, um, we want these new uh, powers because, you know, we found that we could have done something positive here or done something uh, there to stop or disrupt a, a crime and we didn't have the authority. And then it goes out and industry gets to sort of have some input before the legislation appears. This legislation just appeared. And um, a part of the, the shock of it is that um, the powers are so uh, invasive and um, that there hasn't been an opportunity really to um, have input to what the law might say before it reaches these final stages before going to Parliament to be passed. The Identify and Disrupt Bill allows the seizing of an account, like Gmail or Facebook, which assumes the information is there to be seen in its final stage. Unlike encrypted data, the conversion of information into unintelligible code. Encrypted data makes it difficult for law enforcement to intercept and read. The most important thing to understand in encryption is to hide the actual information in a way so that the third party or anybody in between cannot understand. Dr. Priyadasi Nanda is a senior lecturer at UTS at the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology and has more than 27 years of cybersecurity experience. So say, for example, there are two parties in a classical crypto system, they call it um, Bob and Alice. It works via public and private keys. So Alice wants to send uh, information to Bob. So basically, Alice will use the public key, which is known to both Alice, um, uh, known to everybody. So Alice will use that public key to encrypt the message and will send it to Bob. Now, Bob will use um, the private key to decrypt the message. So if you see here, so even if one key is open to everybody, everybody can know what is the public key of Alice and Bob, but they don't know the private key of Alice and Bob. So basically the private key is only known to the concerned um, party. So who wants to participate in the communication? Law enforcement have expressed concerns about challenges posed by end-to-end encryption on platforms like Facebook, which they say keeps them in the dark which is why they've been pushing for inbuilt backdoor access on popular platforms. So whatever algorithm is being used to encrypt the data, the decryption is just the reverse. Everybody knows what is, uh, what is a type of encryption, what is a type of decryption and all. But the only thing which is not known to them is the key. Key is the secret. Right. So, so essentially, decryption is a process through which actually you'll be using that key to, to decrypt or to get or, or to recover the, the uh, Tech companies have strongly opposed backdoor access due to privacy reasons and breaking consumer trust. Because there is a there is some kind of you know binding contract between the tech company and the users in terms of what information they should be disclosed, what information they should not be disclosed. If the backdoor kind of uh, entrance is being given to the given to the police or the law enforcement authority. So there is every chance that the law enforcement authority will get into every details, finding out the privacy information. And then that is a breach of contract between the tech companies and the users who actually sign onto the tech company product. Patrick says there is real concern that consumers will turn elsewhere and companies will be hurt financially in the process. It's a real concern uh, and one of the uh, companies that lobbied um, uh, heavily to moderate the 
uh, Tola legislation was a local um, uh, company that builds encryption tools. And essentially they said uh, to the Commonwealth, well, uh, look, if you pass a law like this, where um, at any time without a judicial order, you can ask us to build access to our software so that you can see what it does and how it does it, or you can get reports and our clients won't know, then how do we do business? Because nobody will want to build anything in Australia knowing that there's the potential that the software has a backdoor built into it for, um, for um, Australian uh, law enforcement. The encryption versus privacy debate has been ongoing for decades. In 2016, Apple famously fought back against US federal investigators refusing to break into the iPhone of a mass shooter. Tonight, Apple defiant, arguing a judge's order that Apple helped the FBI break into the San Bernardino terrorist iPhone violates the Constitution. Eric from Trustwave again. Yeah, so the way they spun that at the time, it was it was all about protecting the public from terrorists and and the the suggestion was that the phone had information about potential third shooter you know they they were rattling the the cage for apple to create a backdoor specifically it was quite a unique request for apple to um, undermine their own security and apple refused apple ceo at the time tim cook said once information is known or a way to bypass the code is revealed, encryption can be defeated by anyone with that knowledge. This case is about the future. What, what is at stake here is can the government compel Apple to write software that we believe would make hundreds of millions of customers vulnerable around the world, including the US? You know, Apple absolutely refused to budge. Do you have any concern that you might be able to prevent a terrorist attack by breaking into that phone? David, some things are hard, and some things are right, and some things are both. This is one of those things. I don't think it was about the content of the phone at all. This is a single phone in a very important investigation where the ask is to write a piece of software that will work only in that phone. That's because the the couple who perpetrated that attack had three or four phones and they destroyed three of those phones before they went off and did what they did and they left one phone untouched and it was his work phone they just used that as a as a case on which to build this case in order to set this precedent that they could force tech companies to give them access to things that they wanted On top of breaking consumer trust, there's always a chance criminals can gain access to a back door once it's enabled. A really nice analogy for the problems around this is, do you remember those TSA-approved padlocks that appeared just after 9-11 when the American Travel Safety Authority, or whoever they are, who were responsible for airport security, didn't like seeing padlocks on bags because they couldn't inspect what was in the bags. So they decided to come up with this idea and it was a padlock with two locks. One was the key that you owned and one was a special master key that the TSA agent had. And there were sort of seven or eight different keys that they could use to open and inspect the baggage and then put a little note to say, we've inspected your luggage and we've locked it again using the special lock. Now, what happened was those locks were super cheap, super easy to pick. A TSA agent was photographed holding a bunch of keys, and that photograph was high enough resolution that people on the internet 
went away and from those photographs reverse engineered those key, those keys and supplied 3D printing models so that anyone who could be bothered could order a set of TSA keys. And, and that is how this stuff goes. Uh, an awful lot of time and effort and testing goes into creating these things with good intentions and the key material goes missing or somebody does the wrong thing or somebody designs something badly and now what you have is, is you know you've spent a massive amount of money and you've created something that is just security theater and that's i think what most of the tech companies are frightened of that we're going to introduce a backdoor with with good intention and it's going to be a big attack surface. It's going to be a honeypot for attackers. It's going to get compromised. And, and then it's very difficult to roll back from that. Patrick says he's concerned about current metadata accessible by law enforcement in Australia. Metadata being the information that defines and describes data. For some reason, um, we've allowed since the 2015 um, metadata laws a distinction to be made between the content of a message and the metadata on your device. Under current metadata laws, that metadata can be obtained under a much lower threshold than the probable cause test under Identify and Disrupt at least they're going to a judicial officer to get an order. Whereas for the metadata on your mobile phone, they just need to write a notice and say, look, uh, getting the data on, on uh, Julia's mobile phone is um, relevant to an activity that I'm doing as law enforcement or national security and provided I document that um, all the three years of your, where you were, who you spoke to, how long you spoke to them, it is all available. And when you put that through an analytics engine, you get a very factual picture of somebody's life in a way which is far more invasive and privacy intrusive than actually intercepting content. In 2013, Queensland police misused metadata access to snoop on fellow police officers and police cadets to see who was lying about a sick day or who was sleeping with who. Patrick says the answer is judicial oversight. I mean, um, you know, we expect our police to be competent and we expect these uh, projects to be run effectively. Um, and we also expect our laws to be properly reviewed and passed so that they um, uh, take account of uh, you know, practical implementations, um, fairness to the people who are being subject to them. Judicial oversight on the issue of these things is, great, is a good idea just because it means the police have to make a case, they have to document it, they have to have a third party sort of as a test to make sure it's okay. And if that, that process gives the public confidence that powers are being used appropriately and, and, uh, and not, you know, for, a, you know, sufficient expeditions and, you know, um, political or other purposes which are inappropriate. But more broadly, we should have a better idea of just how these powers are, are, um, are supervised and we should have more information about how they're used. In the 2019 to 2020 reporting period, over 3,600 interception warrants were issued under the Telecommunications Interception and Surveillance Act. These warrants resulted in over 2,600 arrests. 
Everyday members of the public can follow annual reports on how many surveillance warrants have been issued each year. I think all of us should be more familiar with those mechanisms and there should be a little more, uh, more opportunity for our um, politicians and uh, third party representatives to ask questions and to get information about how this stuff is used just so we know that we're not turning into a, um, a surveillance state and that uh, you know, to the extent to which government is getting information about personal lives and personal activities, it's uh, for a proper purpose. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.